sex. Birds do it, bees do it, even educated trees do it, and of course, you and I. But we don't talk about it enough. I'm James Butler, and you're listening to Navara FM, and if you're a regular listener, you won't have heard my voice in a while. It's good to be with you again. Is there a politics of sex? Over a hundred years of feminist thought tells us yes, but we're still reluctant about going there. And some, perhaps with good reason, are very hesitant to admit it ought to be a discussion among the left, or that beyond certain basic prescriptions around consent, violence and power, politics ought to stop at the bedroom door. The politics of sex, though, brings us face to face with profound issues of power, equality and even how we should order our societies, and perhaps even asks us to look unflinchingly at the ways in which desire or entitlement or belief in ownership can upturn basic principles or undermine what we thought to be politically secure. How a society treats sex, both heterosexual and dissident, might tell you quite a lot about what that society doesn't want to tell itself. Amir Srinivasan's book, The Right to Sex, deals with these questions head on. It's a book about how we might think about sexual violence, about the treatment of women by men and by other women, and by institutions of power and in private relationships. It grew out of an essay published in the London Review of Books on incels, often young men who feel entitled to sexual pleasure and who hate and kill women they perceive as withholding it from them. But it's about much more besides about the law, about justice, education, and how the women's movement has thought about sex and power. A little while ago, I travelled down to Oxford, where Amir holds the Chichley Chair in Social and Political Theory, to talk about all these questions. It is a deep, far-ranging and rigorous conversation, and I am delighted to share it with you. So I, I said I would start with asking what, what was the kind of obvious question. And it's, you know, I, I don't I actually don't often ask it of interviewees. And it's on my mind because someone emailed me after the last show I did and said, why are you doing this trivial nonsense about identity and desire and things like that when there's a neo-fascist state being built around you. And I thought, well, and you know, I, and I, I feel compelled always to email these people back with like serious explanations. Um, and I didn't in this case, but it has been playing, it's, it's been playing on my mind. And, you know, I, I, so I thought I'd ask, you know, why this book now? But to, to answer in a kind of more defensive way, you know, the question of, well, why should we be thinking about feminism at all? I mean, you know, the, your correspondent who wants to know what feminism has to do with or could have to do with uh, fascism. I mean, for example, should really read all of the excellent books on on feminism and fascism. I've got right here, Feminist International by Veronica Gago, um, which is an extraordinary you know, examination of Latin American feminism, which is at the moment probably the most radical feminist uh, project, certainly on the American continent, but probably anywhere. And, um, you know, an anti-fascist vision is absolutely central to it. I mean, you know, forgetting that fascism is centrally preoccupied with the discipline and management and eradication of non-normative desires, I think is 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 fatal if we're going to really understand that as a political project. Um, and 
So feminist theory has enormous and deep resources for thinking about a great number of issues that should concern us, not least, you know, the condition of women, <laughs> but, but much more than much more than that as well. There's something really interesting in your introduction to the book about the importance of a movement speaking frankly to itself. Mm. Um, and it's one of the, the qualities of the book that, that I really admire is that it is concerned with, you know, uh, with, with, with a kind of rational honesty about the, the arguments that it makes. I wonder whether you could expand on that idea of a movement speaking frankly to itself and you know, whether you think that's a, a thing that, that is rare in kind of political writing. So it's a notion I take from David Rodiger, uh, and the and the full well, it's you know the the full paraphrase is you know um, much more important than the this idea of speaking truth to power is speaking truth to to yourself as a radical radical movement. Um, and Rodiger didn't have in mind feminism. He was talking about the labor left, which he feels hasn't spoken honestly to itself about the role of racial domination um, in in the left. The temptation not to speak the, the total truth about oneself is never just about um, self-protection uh, or delusion, right? It's also a matter of politics, right? There are strategic questions about how much truth-telling one is going to in, engage in because certain truths can always be redeployed and repackaged to undermine, right? So if we are going to have an honest conversation, for example, about something we were talking talking about offline, um, about, you know, the role of questions about free inquiry and free conversation um, within within the left. I mean, if you want to have those kind of honest conversations, it's very easy for, for some of those thoughts that we might freely express to then be redeployed by a right all too eager to cast the left as the real um, proponents of so-called cancel culture and the real enemies of free speech when we all know um, that that's the prerogative of, of the right. Um, but I think nonetheless, you know, we, we truth-telling should just be a kind of central, central norm on the left. Um, and we've, and I think that in the case of feminism in, in Particular, and I'm not saying that feminists are have are, are particularly bad. It's just you know my particular concern as a feminist and a feminist theorist is the way in which we have not always been, and by we I mean certain parts of of the feminist movement have not always been great about talking about openly about certain certain things, certain trade offs, um, certain failures, uh, certain misgivings. Mm. Mm. historical mistakes the the there's something i mean just building on that there's something that that in each of the essays in in the book you know you're always concerned with coming to a point of ambiguity and ambivalence sound like almost coward words and, it, and there's something you know in in a lot of those pieces where you're moving towards a central difficulty and refusing to close it off you know earlier in the process of thinking than um you know that than one ought which I, it seems to me is a very common move, right? I mean, you know, you, the search for kind of easy and politically productive answers sometimes means, you know, overly pat answers to, to uh, important political questions. And one of the things that I found very striking about the, the tone in the book, in one of the pieces you're responding to, uh, to critics on um, the, the anti-trans sort of part of feminism, who 
sort of attack you for endorsing the kind of the, the you know, uh, an argument, something called the cotton ceiling, which you don't need to get into. But in fact, it, it's it's an argument that you, you, you know, you make quite carefully, <laughs> but very calmly and say, you know, well, you can't talk about a, a right to sex in that sense. And so I wonder if you have a sense of, of kind of forms of writing and forms of thinking and what it means for, you know what what your method is for thinking through these problems these central problems that occupy you here so one thing i try and do in the essays is is insist that there is a practice of ambivalence and complexity that's radical that's not liberal right and i think that liberals have been very good at claiming falsely claiming the ground of um complexity and empathy. Uh, and so I can understand why on the left we can be hesitant to do things like think about arguments from the other side or think about what you know the motivations are for people on the on the other side or or but you know liberals don't actually do it particularly well and and those of us on the left are poised to do this in a kind of radical interesting way. And I think um, you know the essay itself can be a kind of radical, practice. Let's jump in in a bit more detail to some of the pieces Great. Um, in the book. And I, I, I don't think I was surprised because I sort of expect it in your <laughs> writing. But I think some readers might be surprised um, by the fact that the book opens with, with these, this question of false accusation mm. and false accusation of rape. You know, I thought it was an interesting move to come via that route into the question of, uh, uh, you know, a, of law, basically. And mm. I think there's a very strong presence of the juridical in the book, and especially in, in kind of the first half of the book, and when you're, you're dealing with kind of the way in which, you know, especially uh, uh, institutions, especially universities, but not just, in, not just universities, institutions of law, courts, um, approach sex and sexual violence. And, you know, in, in a sense, it's, you know, the, the obvious answer is that sexual violence is a matter for the law and therefore, you know, the law has a place in our, our thinking about it. But I, I wonder if we can explore that a bit because I was, I, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily seem obvious to me that, that um, although, you know, questions about the law, its enforcement, its scope have been part of feminist activism for well over the past century, um, it doesn't seem obvious to me that that is always the the clear route into thinking about sex. So, am I overreading the presence of the juridical, or how important is it for you? No, I think I think you're not overreading at all. I mean, I think that the reason the the juridical is so present in the book is because the juridical is so present in, especially Anglophone feminism, and also under the global influence of American feminism, increasingly present in. Um, you know the feminism that you find in the global south, not 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 um, feminist movements, but state-sponsored forms of feminism, um, and that is a historical choice, which isn't to say um, that it shouldn't be a matter for the law, that sexual violence shouldn't be a matter for the law, but it it wasn't always as much a matter for the law as it is and not always as much a matter for the criminal law and especially from the feminist perspective. So it's interesting that, you know, the anti-rape feminists of the late 1960s and early 1970s in the US, uh, you know, the groups like New York Radical Feminists, um, you know, they 
took rape as one of the central issues, right, facing women and the eradication of rape as one of their central goals. But they were really uninterested in calling on the coercive power of the state to address rape. Um, they just didn't believe it was going to work. And that radically changes as we get into the mid-70s and then into the 80s, right? You have American feminists reaching very happily and in concert with often right-wing um, legislators for the coercive power of the law to address not just rape, but domestic violence, other forms of sexual violence, sexual harassment, obviously. And there are lots of feminist theorists who have pointed out that the kind of full juridicization of rape has had a profound influence on how we think about um, sexual violence. And in, you know, the reason we are all so obsessed with consent, for example, is an artifact of um, that juridical way of thinking about the law. Because the thing about consent is you have some hope in hell in a law court of establishing whether consent was given or not. It's operationalizable mm -hmm. as a criterion. Take a set of criteria like mutuality, reciprocity, I don't know, imaginativeness. <laughs> I mean, what law court, however ideal, yeah. is going to be able yeah. to adjudicate that? None. And so insofar as, but, but of course, you don't have to have these things together. You can think, well, there's the question about, you know, what kind of laws we should have and what criteria they should use. And that's completely distinct from the question of what um, you know, a radical sexual ethic should look like. But then the, the consequence here is, is interesting, isn't it? And it's one of the things that, that, that pops up at various points in the book is that you know, the, 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 the way in which we think about sex uh, and the way in which our, the society in which we live thinks about sex, which I think is in some sense more important, you might have a kind of dissident um, or, or, or more, you know, attempt a more complex account of sexuality than the society in which you live. Mm -hmm. I think lots of us do, lots of us try to. But it's nonetheless the case that in dominant discourse on sex is so heavily legalized that it has, it, you know, it, it, there's almost something contagious about it, right? And so unless there you have a kind of sort of perpetual practice, perpetual intellectual practice of, of not slipping into habits of thought, habits which are kind of communicated to you in, you know, in newspapers, on TV, in you know, culture, et cetera, et cetera, you know, then, 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 then the juridical becomes sort of part of the way in which you think about sex. And, you know, one of the, the, the ways in, in which I was thinking about this while reading your work is, is, is precisely the approach to the men of the Me Too cases, the series of Me Too cases, where you write about the way in which there was almost this kind of command in lots of the writing about me too saying well well we can't judge until the court judges mm. um that that our approach to this stuff has to be as if we ourselves were behaving as jurors in this case and say you know i am i am i have i have a, a sort of empty head and sort of tabula rasa until the court kind of arrives at its verdict and that will tell me whether this guy is a creep or not. Like, we know Harvey Weinstein is a creep. Like this is not, this is, this is, everyone, you know, I mean, one of the problems with the whole thing is everyone knew. Yeah. Everyone knew. And there was, so there was this, you know, this, this question of, of how knowledge becomes relevant. Um, so yeah, I mean like that, that question of like, you know, how to exist alongside, you know, this is, mm. you know, it's obvious and whether it's desirable or not that, that these institutions like courts become the, the means by which 
um, you know, by which these these questions are addressed. You know, sure, that's a problem. The problem is also that we, you know, we so instinctively think about you know, think about it in this way in our everyday lives. So, how can we think differently about mm. it? I mean, one thing that people don't seem to kind of generally realize is that <clears throat> by design, uh, the law should be much more kind of structurally reluctant to arrive at inferences that we are all just as rational epistemic agents entitled to arrive at, right? And so, you know, you have this overwhelming evidence of Weinstein's guilt. And um, yeah, the, we should, of course, have a law system, a legal system that presumes him innocent. But the idea that that's epistemically demanded of the rest of us is just, you know, completely absurd. Uh, and of course, it's an, you know, it's partly ideological, right? Of course, um, a certain kind of person wants to invoke notions of um, presumption of innocence, due process, precisely because they know that they're stacked in favor of, of the accused. But I also think you're right that there is this kind of general inability to understand the idea of a kind of sexual ethics or sexual politics that stands outside of the law. Yeah. I mean, one thing to say is like, well, we could all just be, I mean, feminists were never really confused about this, right? I mean, feminists have always been very good at, at, at you know, separating out the question of, um, you know, what was legally permissible and, and what uh, sort of ideals of sexual and erotic interaction we should struggle towards. But there were, you know, feminists who started striking fairly cautionary notes against that um, come the mid-70s onwards in the U.S. and the U.K. I mean, uh, you know, as you get the development of things like political lesbianism and separatism, all of these attempts to really kind of personalize the political and, you know, engage in certain kinds of um you know, very prefigurative uh, politics. Um, you, you did get, you know, the mass alienation of of women who saw themselves as as straight and so couldn't just disaffiliate from men. Of course, you had you know black women who just pointed out what should have been obvious, which is that you know they couldn't really disaffiliate from men given the very serious racial struggle that they were in. And at its worst, that kind of prefigurative politics does become a kind of very you know navel gazing. Um, anti-material cultural politics that becomes a real kind of identity, like identity politics in the fully pejorative sense. And so that's kind of one reason you might be pushed towards thinking in more juridical terms, right? So that's one reason you might think, well, so long as something's legal, then it should be fine. I mean, look, that's also true at this moment, more or less of, well, you can understand the push from a queer political project, right, to say, look, once the thing has been legalized, and that's all you need to know about it morally, right? So you do want the kind of, uh, the law uh, to have a kind of pedagogical function mm. in the case where you've actually legalized, you know, forms of homosexuality, gay marriage, and so on. So I think it's complicated. I mean, I do, I, of course, am very much in favor of thinking about sexual politics in a way that far exceeds and kind of leaves aside the juridical. But, you know, there are also dangers and in yeah, doing I mean, so. it, one returns to it, right? I mean, the the, I mean, it's so funny in, in some sense. I mean, the title of the book is 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 you know invoking a kind of uh, uh, you know rights based, mm -hmm. which is 
may or may not think is juridical, but I think it necessarily yes. involves the law <laughs> um, in some way. One law or another. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> then you, you think probably the most popular way of thinking about identity on the left these days is intersectionality, mm. which derives in part from work about the law and how the law approaches uh, or, or how to think through the law in relation to, to oppression. Some of the cases you discuss are particularly interesting. I'm thinking of a case in particular, which I eventually ended up in court, but began as a sort of university disciplinary case, case of a, you know, maybe you could talk us through the case, actually. I won't do as good a job of it as you. It's just this fascinating, um, fascinating case. So it takes place at UMass Amherst, a big American university. And the account we have of it basically comes from um, the alleged victim. So she, she is a an undergraduate student. She meets up with um, with this guy, uh, Bonsu, at uh, a party. They get stoned. They start hooking up. She tells him right away that they're not going to have sex. He says that's fine. And as this hookup kind of progresses, she doesn't really want to be going on with it anymore. She wants to stop giving him a handjob specifically, but she doesn't feel like she can uh, desist, not because she thinks anything, he's going to do anything, but because as she says later, you know, UMass women are supposed to finish what they start. At the same time, you know, a couple of times she sort of pulls away and he pulls her back. She describes it as playful. Okay. You know, they finish hooking up, they exchange numbers. She walks out and she thinks about what just happened. And she decides that she was, as she says, I was violated. Right, so she decides that she's been she's had non-consensual sex. She's basically been sexually assaulted. And she goes to the police. Uh, the police decide not to take it forward, but it it opens up the whole vast apparatus of the Title IX infrastructure on on this university campus, which is basically a kind of quasi-legal parallel uh, parallel structure with with lots of problems. And he ends up uh well, he ends up getting kind of banned from uh you know, anywhere but his dorm room. He can't eat anywhere. He go, He has to move back in with his parents. He has a total melton, mental breakdown. Ultimately, he ends up suing the university who pays him some undisclosed amount. Um, yeah, it's just this incredibly messy case. And what critics of Title IX, feminist critics of Title IX, uh, like Laura Kipnis um, or you know, Jeannie Sook Gerson want to say is that this is just a case of quite ordinary sex, right? The kind of sex um, that like young people have all the time um, being uh, reinterpreted as sexual violation thanks, thanks to a kind of new feminist dogma that says any sex that you regret having uh, was, was uh, a violation. And I don't think that's right, because it's really messed up that this woman didn't want to have the sex, but felt precisely because she was a woman that she had to, that she had to finish it. Um, at the same time, I think it's clearly not a case of sexual assault, right? It's exactly the sort of thing you uh, would be ideally dealt with by some kind of transformative justice mm, process, mm. Um, a non-juridical yeah. process, Um yeah, well, that's exactly what I thought when I was reading it, was that this is exactly the kind of case that calls for a sort of 
you know, sort of transformative reconciliation of some kind. Exactly. And, and yet the elements for it were there. You know, she herself said, I, well, I don't want him kind of to to be punished in, yeah. in, in this way. You know, so, and so the operation of this entirely separate <laughs> from, which, which as you say, I mean, you know, the, these, this stuff draws in the question of sort of these, these vast and very wealthy institutions basically looking to protect themselves, which is clearly not the motivation that, that you want dealing with complex cases like this. I understand the argument. I understand the attraction of the argument to say that, well, there are forms of difficult sex that um, require dealing with outside of the context of yeah. the law because the context of the law makes it, makes it worse. Yes. It makes it worse. Yeah. Um, and that that's that seems true to me, even if I wouldn't quite go as far as Kipnis did, because the, I mean the other element here that's so striking is like how clear her account is of her own motivation, mm. and that I thought was tragic. Mm. I thought it was tragic to be so aware, in a way that I think any any university would be glad to have exactly. taught someone to be aware of, of the way in which their yeah. their you know their their motivations are constructed, and yet be still utterly at the behest of them. Yeah. She needs a consciousness racing group. She does. She does. It's please they don't exist. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's the problem. Um, there was something else I wanted to ask you about the kind of Me Too stuff, which is, I guess, what we're, we're sort of cycling around here, which is you quote Michelle Goldberg saying she felt sympathy for the men of Me Too, a degree of sympathy. And you know, it's not clear to me, I haven't read the, the Goldberg piece that, that, that you're drawing from, um, so it's not clear to me the, the degree to which she feels conflicted about it and the degree to which you feel conflicted about her mm. statement. Um, and I, I can't decide whether I find that sympathy repugnant or understandable or and I find it very difficult to make up my mind on it. I just wonder what you think about it. I mean Goldberg herself, if you go and read the original, is, is certainly ambivalent. So she she first wants to draw a distinction between um I think she says like the really egregious offenders like Harvey Weinstein. And then she says like, and the more kind of just like disgusting schmoes, you know, or something like that. Definitely she says schmoes. Um, sort of, you know, these kind of hapless men who she says on whom the rules have changed suddenly. So where I take leave from Goldberg, I mean, I think, first of all, this distinction between, you know, egregious and non, I think is itself kind of problematic. I mean, Weinstein is a serial offender, but you can also just destroy one person's mm -hmm. life in one interaction, right? And so the, so I think that itself is a kind of problematic uh, notion. But Goldberg's thought that the rules have changed on men, um, which is like a very commonly uh, offered diagnosis of what's happened by a Me Too, I think is just not quite descriptively right. So the rules, I don't think, have actually changed that much. I mean, there there was a kind of men had a general understanding that they were getting away with something, mm. right? That they were doing something in violation of certain norms, right? Not norms in the in the statistical sense, but in the normative sense of what was actually expected of like good people, decent people interacting with each other. But what they knew was that they weren't those those rules weren't going to actually be enforced or were less likely were unlikely to be enforced. Um, and so I think that kind of changes the picture somewhat. I mean like so someone like Louis CK, 
you know, some people want to say, well, you know, the rules have changed on him because he was just allowed to masturbate in front of her. It's like, no, he knew he wasn't supposed to. And when one woman actually told him off for doing it, he just, he turned bright red, right? Why, why that blush? Mm-hmm. Um, what is it? Well, what is the humiliation and the embarrassment? Because you're being called out for something you know you shouldn't have done, right? So I don't think that the kind of rules changing is a really helpful way. It's, it's more like the penalties are changing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that changes how we should feel about um about uh the men of me too i mean i think the more the the strongest case for men you should feel sorry for are those you literally had no idea how they were coming across and i want to leave open the possibility that there are such people mm. right but i think too many people too many cases get assimilated to that case too many cases of guys actually being dicks and sort of knowing that they're dicks am i allowed to say that yeah, yeah. um <laughs> get assimilated to the phenomenon of like the totally kind of clueless dick who has right, no right, idea right it, it, i mean that's that was it's my hesitation as well right the, the way that this argument is always constructed is, is is as if there are these kind of vast throngs of uh you know entirely well-intentioned um utterly kind of clear of conscience um you know <laughs> sexual predators right. which doesn't seem right. doesn't seem to me i i mean i've never met one no i know uh, no no so what they are are these they're these kind of like philosophical constructions right they're like mm, brains and mm, bats yeah, they're people yeah, yeah. there are people in these perfect skeptical scenarios right like they're in the matrix like how could they possibly know Right. And what's implausible about that is just as there are glitches in the matrix, you know, there are glitches in patriarchy, right? Patriarchy is not actually a perfect ideological system, in part because, well, in part because many men themselves feel the revolt against it, right? But they're also surrounded by women who are constantly revolting against it in both quite in private ways and quite public ways. So yeah, I haven't met that character either. Um, Of course, these things exist on a continuum. Uh, but I think that that kind of philosophical thought experiment is sort of wheeled out ideologically um, to stop us from like thinking just, about what's think really happening. Is it just anxiety? I mean, I, this the other thing that occurred to me is that is is this form of reasoning motivated by by a fear that one is complicit oneself, and you know uh, uh, that you know I don't know that something you did. 15 years ago that you don't even remember will be dragged out you know the, the, the basically the fear of a guilty conscience i mean is, yeah. it that, is that is that i think that certainly has something to do with um, it pretty common <laughs> um <laughs> right let's talk I mean, let's talk. I mean there is an interesting question about what we should do about people's pasts in general yeah. and you know i mean I would, one of the hopes I've always had about the internet is now that there are basically going to be no secrets about what any of us have done in the past, we'll all become a lot better about admitting that we've all been really shitty in the past. That doesn't seem to be the way the internet has gone. (laughs) Do you know, I used to hope this, because I, so I remember having this conversation, I think about, it must be, well, I was here, so it was about 12, 13 years ago, um, and saying, well, you know, nobody's past is ever going to leave them. And therefore, the hypocrisy that attended something like the major government with mm. its kind of, you know, um, back to basics, you know, family values plus, you know, really profound hypocritical sleaze. You know, we, you know, we're going to hunt for hypocrisy much less in politicians. Well, I mean, I was of my <laughs> of my predictions, that was one of the most wrong. Um, but you know, I was an idealistic undergraduate, so that's that. It happens. Um, 
We should talk about desire. Let's talk about desire. Um, the, the thing that you make a kind of strong argument for and the thing that I think, you know, in a sense is essential and has been unfashionable is a return to the question of the social construction of desire. You know, the, the fact that our desires are socialized and the fact that they're therefore malleable, which mm. is which gets us into really complex and really tricky territory. You know, it seems to me obvious that that at some point in you know, the dominance of kind of post-Freudian Freudian thought in the 20th century, that this was taken for granted among, you know, among feminists of every stripe, mm. really. Um, and it doesn't seem to be the case so much these days. Um, and so I just wonder if we can explore that a bit. I wonder, you know, how compelled are we to think about where our desire comes from and how compelled are we to try to change it? Mm. <laughs> just a small <laughs> Just a small, small question. One. So I think there's, um, I mean, I think that your historical diagnosis is, is absolutely right. I mean, the desire was very much part of the kind of open possibility space, the horizon of possibility of, of you know, the women's liberation movement, you know, together with everything else, the, re, you know, the demise and the reconstruction of, of family relations, childcare. Um, of course, heterosexuality was going to be up for grabs um, and other forms of, of sexual romantic desire. Uh, it becomes extremely unpopular to think about desire as malleable. I mean, in, for many reasons. I mean, I think one thing just has to do with the gay rights movement and the, um, I think, tragic necessity, uh, or at least tragic historic necessity of insisting on a certain discourse of innateness and unmalleability um, of desire and orientation, right? Why is that? Well, basically because conventional morality thinks, well, if, if someone can't help it, <laughs> if they were born that way, then I guess we're not going to try and kill them or punish them for that. Um, because you know it's not their it's not their fault, and you know that the kind of born this way discourse as it relates to uh, gay men and women, and then we can also talk about uh, trans uh, people as well. Uh, you know, is still very important. Has been up until you know. I mean, as recently as 2012, Cynthia Nixon got into a huge amount of trouble by sort of implying that for her being gay was a choice. She said, you know, I've been straight and I've been gay, and gay is better. I mean, I mean, it's a queer anthem, <laughs> but she got into huge amounts of trouble um, for totally understandable political reasons. I mean, in trouble with gay and lesbian mm -hmm. activists who were, you know, again afraid of a certain form of truth telling. Not because they're just afraid of truth per se, but because they understood the strategic political importance of of uh, figuring desire is totally fixed. So I think that has something to do with it. You know, obviously there's also the kind of fallout from political lesbianism as a, as a kind of as a kind of political program with which very few women felt like they could really. I mean, I, I think it's complicated, but you know. It wasn't a long-lasting and generalizable political program. Um, and generally, I think you get, by the kind of late 70s and early 80s, this feeling, at least within American and British feminism, that um, these attempts to bring desire, women's desire, in line with politics actually is just ending up reinforcing um, 
the repression of women's sexuality. So it ends up being kind of complicit in a patriarchal project rather than being truly emancipatory. And then you get a kind of sex positivity at the end of it, which just sort of says, well, you know, as long as the other person's a consenting adult, like, great. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the thing that was strange to say when I, you know, first I to engage with this stuff as a, a sort of teenager coming out and then reading kind of, feminist and queer thought about desire and the, really the fashionable thing you know let's not think about how long ago it was <laughs> but it, it felt very much that there was this sense that that really what you needed to do was you know free desire um you know from from you know various kind of repressions and then somehow it would all work out <laughs> wow is that not the case but but you know i mean there's there's something there and it seems to me to be a persistent feature of writing about desire is that there is this a temptation towards a kind of almost vitalism and what's something that says there is this kind of you know hypostasis of desire out there that kind of manifests through you and what you need to do is kind of and you can see the fascist inflection that this can yeah. take um and in, in a sense that's sort of what i'm asking because it seems to me that this is actually also the incel theory of desire that there is this kind of you know metaphysical sexual pressure that has to be expressed. Otherwise it will be, you know, it's almost a sort of you know, cold Freudianism actually, mm. but otherwise it will become deformed and result in sort of violence. And yet at the same time, it's not really a sincere kind of metaphysics of desire because it's also an excuse, Yeah. right? I mean, it's, you know, and, and this is something that you get at at your writing on, on this stuff. So in a sense, you're, you're, you're writing about incels is striking precisely because you cease pretty quickly to be interested in actually what they say about mm. themselves because not only is it not trustworthy, it is, you know, it is designed not to be trustworthy. Mm. It's designed to be an excuse. It, there's no kind of sincere self-knowledge there. Um, so it's probably worth us talking about it in 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 the context of the incel, mm. um, who, which, of course, you have written about mm. um, uh, and broke the internet, really. <laughs> Um, mean to, yeah. Yeah, but it's a, it's 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 precise. It, I think it's a good piece precisely because you know it ceases to be interesting. You know, and, and in a sense, that's my question: does it does it does it matter the way that Elliot Roger thought about his sexuality and his 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 desire? Well, I think you know we can make a distinction um, in in the project of sort of understanding someone. So you can try and understand them um, as a cultural and sociological phenomenon, which doesn't involve taking them seriously in the sense of um, taking them at their word as good representatives of their genuine motivations, right? Or, or, or to be people or, or to rely on them as people who have any kind of real insight in, into um, their their origins or workings. Or you can, you know, do that thing of like taking someone seriously in the full sense of like trying to understand what reasons they supply for their actions and things like that. I think when it comes to insults, you've got to very quickly move from like the second thing to the first thing, right? Precisely for the reason you said is like the, the reasons they supply um, are interesting only insofar as they are symptoms of a kind of a certain set of discourses, a fascist discourse, but also very much a kind of 
a, a certain kind of neoliberal uh, discourse. I mean, they're not actually that interested in their own desire. Mm. That's another thing that's, you know, you, you say, like, what's their theory of desire? Well, like, I think you're right that they've got this kind of general vitalist theory of desire where um, there has to be some kind of outlet for it. But I think fundamentally what they're interested in is status and hierarchy. Uh, so the, the problem is, uh, you know, the kind of economy um, of desire where they like see themselves as unjustifiably losers. And it's not about like not being desired as such. It's about like what that lack of desire uh, means about their kind of social standing. I mean, there, which isn't to say there aren't lots of lonely people. There are lots of lonely people. But notice how the incel conversation is never about friendship. Mm. You know, it's never about affinity. It's never about, you know, human like togetherness and community. It's just about sex with people with very particular kinds of bodies, right? That's the first clue mm. that it's like really not about desire, right? But so many of these discussions about desire aren't really about desire because if we were going to be talking about desire, we'd be talking about a lot more than just sex. Mm -hmm. I knew from the original essay that this is someone who had been sort of taken up as a kind of cause célèbre among, you know, the, among other kind of uh, uh, violent predators, murderers, uh, and so on, there's a page that kind of lists these various shooters who who have taken him as their inspiration, which is phenomenally chilling, actually, as 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 as, as a catalogue. And I'm sure it could be added to, but it put me in mind of a, a Jacqueline Rose line about the that the point of male harassment isn't just entitlement to bodies, but it's an entitlement to minds mm. as well, an entitlement to be present um, in 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 the harassee's mind. Uh, and to change and to kind of warp and constrict uh, women's minds. And I wonder if you have a sense of, of how that operates, because it seems to me that that's something that extends well beyond um, just the, the kind of, you know, still relatively minor um, culture of you know, incels in particular. It seems to me to be much more general. You know, there's almost a miasma about thinking about it. And you have a, a line in there about, you know, the 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 fear of thinking like a rapist, mm. and yet it seems to me, you know, it seems to me important to confront this stuff face to face. Obviously, the the body has plays such an important role in feminist thought and feminist practice. But I I I, I really agree with you. Well, I don't know how far you'd go with this, but I, I would go to the point of just saying, like, the, the whole discourse of you know bodies as a stand-in for people is really problematic yeah. uh, when it comes to whatever we're talking about, patriarchy, racial domination, class domination, mm. right? It, it's the people in their fullness that these systems and the perpetrators of these systems want to command. And sometimes those bodies are just secondary. Mm. And the one way of thinking about this is in the specific case of you know, so-called incels is how very few of them are interested in paying women to have sex with them. So they, you know, they they tend to um, balk at the idea of paying sex workers, and it's because they know that if you uh, pay for a service, um, that you know you know exactly what the motivations are of the woman who's doing it. They're financial. They're not. It's not because you know they are choose selecting you in um, an economy of of desire and sexual prestige, and. Uh, what they want is not just the woman's body or the woman's sexual service. They want the woman's mind. They want to inhabit a particular role and space in in the mind. 
And so I, I think that thinking of patriarchy as entitlement to bodies is not actually very productive at all. I mean, it's fine as far as it goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate I hate this as it manifests in its kind of most kind of folk form, which is to kind of rail against the domination of black bodies or oh, queer God. bodies. Or, My gosh. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not a queer body. <laughs> <laughs> But it's important because, you know, I mean, the question here is not just, it's not just about, you know, freedom from the most obvious forms of domination. It's about the, the it's about freedom, you know, to be a political subject. That's right. Um, this is, you know, maybe a point to, to start thinking about some of the kind of canon of feminists in, in the book, um, many of whom you know, are concerned about this question about what it would mean. So that, that you know, the, the, the essay reflecting on that, that incels piece, you end with sort of, we have never yet been free, which I think is a you know it's a thought that I return to very often. It's it's precisely useful for you know for for thinking about how we deal with the radical traditions that we inherit. So that that Rodiger quote, you know, in in your in your introduction, you know, something very similar has been on my mind over the past few years when I have been much closer to the Labour Party than I would. Mm. usually have been <laughs> and indeed much closer than I am now this is a much more comfortable position for me in relation to it and yet you know thinking about how you deal with your political inheritance and your predecessors who were operating also in a condition of unfreedom uh, and in a condition of unfreedom which is you know in some senses worse than ours you know but I, I am nostalgic about various things and, and sometimes you know one one reads accounts of of meetings in in the seventies, um, I think. Yeah, <laughs> if uh, only. Can I just interrupt it? We want to get, but I just want to talking about envy uh, of the seventies. So I was reading, as I told you uh, earlier, um, I've been reading Sheila Robotham's new memoir of the seventies, uh, Daring to Hope, and I mean it opens with you know <clears throat> discussion of you know the communal house in which she was living in Hackney, which she had bought in her early twenties <laughs> as like just, you know, a very ordinary middle class girl struggling to like get a job at a, as a receptionist, you know? And and it's like, oh. yes, there are material reasons that we that I mean it's not that these things that these experiments in living are impossible now, but they are a hell of a mm. lot harder. And they are they are harder on purpose. That's the point. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, this gets us to where I want to get to because so, so there are two strands here. One is how you deal with the kind of intellectual inheritance and one is how you deal with kind of some of the stuff that seemed to be available historically that isn't now. You know, one of the, the people who's very present in various parts of the book, the person I'm thinking about is Andrew Dworkin, who is a tremendously divisive figure um, and, and, and I think not necessarily very widely read these days, no. which I think is a shame. She's an uh, extraordinary writer. Phenomenal writer. Oh my god! The novel Mercy is, I mean, it's a very, very difficult thing to read. And it, it begins with, you know, each chapter begins with, my name is Andrea. And, and then it's, you know, <laughs> now the story of abuse or domination or, or violence. And so, you know, and, and often, you know, I, after reading Dworkin, it was very difficult to kind of not see a sort of subtext of violence underlying mm. every social interaction and eventually one becomes thankful for that because it, you know you, you you move you move out of seeing the world like that I don't think everyone moves out of seeing the world like that but I did nonetheless it's an important lesson and you know and that's just one of the books um so so I mean my what I'm approaching here is a question about how you deal with kind of controversial and I think particularly these kind of contested second wave mm. feminist figures who 
do not sit well, I think, with kind of contemporary feminist uh, sensibilities, whether that's in terms of kind of political lesbianism, whether it's in terms of um, anti-pornography, whether it's in terms of you know, proto-transphobia, mm. um, all of these things are questions that I think you know, are, you know, are present at various points in the book. I'm just interested in how you approach dealing with these things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so my my feelings about teaching these um, quote unquote problematic second wave thinkers. You know, all of my sort of thoughts about it come out of teaching them to both undergraduates and graduate students. Um, many of my students come in being like, "How are I can't I can't read Catherine McKinnon? She's a turf." I mean, first of all, Catherine McKinnon is not a turf. I mean, yeah. Catherine McKinnon, just for the record, you know, one of the one of the first uh, women that she represented in a sex discrimination case was a trans woman uh, incarcerated in a in a male prison. Um, so th there is a certain amount of just correction to do. Um, but, you know, but you're absolutely right that, you know, you read Firestone and there's a, it, it's, it's problematic <laughs> in various ways. Um, you know, there's the pedophilia, there's the trans exclusionary stuff and that's certain Solanus full of misandry. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the racism of, of Firestone, which Angela Davis calls her out for, uh, Dworkin and McKinnon, the, the, you know, the intense anti-prostitution, um, campaign that goes through their work and that of course spills out into material politics. So you can't treat any of this stuff as just a kind of intellectual enterprise. There's there's good historical reason why, you know, lots of feminists of that time, you know, can't bring themselves to engage with this stuff intellectually anymore because they they feel like they've seen too much how the kind of carceral project uh, unfolds from the, uh, this kind of theoretical engagement. At the same time, when I teach my students, um, you know, whether it's Dworkin or McKinnon or Adrian Rich, I mean, they just love it and they shock themselves. And it's not because they love the policy prescriptions. I mean, not a thing. I haven't, I mean, I think I have one student who's really ever kind of put a, forward a very strong kind of, you know, anti-sex work uh, argument. Um, but it's because they find the diagnoses, the kind of worldview, as you were suggesting, the, the thing that Dworkin allows you to see, which is this is what the world looks like when you see it through the prism of kind of male violence. They find that resonant, scary, thrilling, productive. And, you know, if it's speaking to a bunch of 20-somethings, both women and men um, and non-binary people, then I feel like it's something that, you know, we can still think with today. Obviously, there's got to be, even this is where the ambivalence comes in, right? So you've got to think about like, well, what is it about Dworkin's vision of the world that is attractive? And what's the thing that's revolting inside of me? And what do I do with these two things? Um, and how do I have um, a radical politics that takes up that part of Dworkin that seems to be just describing sometimes the way that the world really is and we don't want to own up to, while at the same time resisting much of everything that's downstream from that for her, right? Because for someone like Dworkin, um, there's a failure to see herself as a powerful agent, right? And to see feminism in general as um, something that can wield extraordinary power, especially when it makes certain kinds of deals with the conservative state. Um, a really good thing that they remind us of, and Dworkin's a great example here, and Firestone and Solanus, these are all uh, good examples, is of the importance of just the kind of wild and wacky and the carnivalesque in uh, the history of like left thought more generally and utopian thought. 
Um, and I don't want to lose that. And I don't want us to, you know, think that certain texts have to be set aside um, just because they say wild and ridiculous things. I mean, insofar as you're interested in constructing a kind of alternative feminist canon, um, you've got to kind of do... you. you <laughs> You've got to kind of do what we do in when we're talking about, you know, the quote unquote great Western canon, which is allow, quote, problematic texts on mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. um, and take up those problems as points of discussion as opposed to, you know, things that just kind of rule them out from, from right, appearance. Right. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, the literary humanities do have, you know, quite good practice at quite this good. point of like, <laughs> going, okay, <laughs> think about what's going on. But, you know, I mean, I, it's funny you mentioned the, the kind of wild and wacky is that, you know, and, and you know, the other thing is quotable. I mean, you know, my God, Solanus, I mean, what is it? there remains to civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation and destroy the male sex. Roman, get that tattooed. <laughs> <laughs> Epistemic claims and claims to kind of solidarity. Must we always believe women? Short answer is no. I mean, especially when what we're thinking about is, you know, should we believe any given individual woman? I think that's a ridiculous proposition. Women lie, men lie, we all lie. Um, of course, what we're talking about is the slogan, uh, believe women. Um, and I think that's to be understood as a an essentially dialectical slogan, right? So it's all, it's responsive to a, a political condition in which women are on the whole not believed when they make accusations of sexual harassment and assault. And so it's a, it's a gesture of epistemic solidarity, right? Um, and I don't think it should, be, we don't actually get to voluntarily believe or not believe. So I can't decide. I'm just going to suddenly believe that there's, you know, a unicorn, uh, you know, at rest by my feet, right? So when we say like, I believe her, you're not even actually declaring something about your mental state. What you're doing is engaging in a political performance that is supposed to be anticipating the fact that she is unlikely to be believed. So I think, you know, we need to just immediately separate out these these two um, these two senses of believing believing women and understand that slogan in that particular political way. Even then, though, I think it is problematic, um, precisely because it doesn't really own up to the very long history of um, the way in which you know credibility. Uh, is not simply um, maldistributed across the gender line, right? There's the racial line and there's the particular history of, you know, the white woman's false rape accusation or more, or very often the white man's false rape accusation um, uh, mobilized against men of, men of color, um, which of course in turn uh, very much hurts women of color, not only because the men in their communities are being, you know, locked up um, on false uh, false allegations, but also because it reinscribes, uh, you know, especially black women's um, position as the kind of, you know, promiscuous other to the black male, um, you know, rapist mm, right mm. um so i think that you know as feminists we should think in much more complicated ways about the kind of distribution of belief yeah i mean th there's there's another sense isn't there in which in in which there's also a, a claim to knowledge from experience mm. right and i think you know th this is one of the one of the areas I, I i kind of go back and forth on in kind of contemporary 
I don't want to call it identity politics, but you know, yeah. fair enough name for it. Um, because you know, so for instance, like, you know, the, the you know, you see it mobilised in kind of queer politics quite often, right? Which is that it is impossible mm. for a straight person to know and understand my subject position and the kinds of knowledge that are generated from it. I wonder if there's a, you know something, you know, methodologically individualist underlying mm. this claim, right? Yeah. That says, you know, I, that there is that, that that not only is my experience unique despite also being a collective experience among other people who share my identity, but nonetheless unique in the sense that you can't, you can't understand it. But also I have no way of communicating it. And that just seems to me to be catastrophically untrue and actually quite politically dangerous. And yet I want to make room for claims that, you know, that say there is, you know, that there is something that, that you can't see. Um, and that actually the, that it's a form of knowledge that is derived from a complex of experiences, some of which are emotional, some of which are instinctive, some of which are uh, just conditioned over time, um, that produces a, a kind of body of knowledge about being in the world as a queer person, for instance, that you know maybe I can give you some sense of, but that actually to live inside is is you know is is some it sometimes feels hard to mm. communicate mm. because on on the one hand it seems to me that kind of the, the precondition of solidarity is kind of imaginative participation right is that like the the point of solidarity is that you know I don't experience the same thing as you and yet I can participate you know I, I attempt to understand and participate you know via imaginative identification. I hate to step in with my philosophical distinction, but maybe this is of some use. I mean, there is this kind of distinction of, you know, a, a form of knowledge that's phenomenological and a knowledge of what something is like, yeah. right? The quality of experience, right? And it's often thought that that's not really communicable. There's something that will be lost in any attempt to communicate what something is like. But nonetheless, we can communicate propositional knowledge. So we can, you know, communicate um, that, uh, you know, a certain practice is like queer phobic, right? Without maybe being able to communicate what it's like to be on the receiving end of that kind of practice, right? Um, but I, I think that uh, even drawing that distinction is too harsh because, you know, there, there is, a, well, there's a question of what, what about the political imagination and the creative imagination and the writerly imagination? Um, I would never want to reduce uh, or instrumentalize the value of Baldwin or any other great writer um, in this way, but it's undeniable um, that you know you read another country and there's something of what it's like to be mm. a gay black man in the '60s coming through to you, even even though you're not a gay black man in the '60s. Um, so again, I, I I mean I think a lot of the you know the talk of um, this kind of experience politics and the demand for epistemic deference like has to be understood as this kind of dialectical response to a kind of liberal politics which assumes that you know anything the only admissible um, evidence again it's a kind of juridical notion the only admissible evidence in kind of public discourse is the kind of evidence that's in principle available to everyone right so you can't speak about your personal experiences and you can't ground your um you know, your knowledge in uh, by appeal to those experiences because not everyone has had those experiences. So you can only appeal to like, you know, what role is called public reasons. Um, and so I think of the appeal to like experience as a, as a, as like a reaction formation against mm -hmm. that, that very stifling liberal thing. I mean, you can just think about how it works out in practice, right? So, um, you know, famously, uh, Carmita Wood, uh, 
was you know sexually harassed before the notion sexual or the phrase sexual harassment came into existence and she tried to communicate that fact when she had to explain um, why it is she was applying for unemployment benefits and she had to write down her reasons and she just wrote like personal right it's devastating right because it's personal in this profound sense mm-hmm. like there isn't a, yet a public language to be able to articulate that um, at the same time that kind of corrective that is supposed to um, be about recognizing that there are, there's kind of like differential um, access to knowledge depending on the kind of social experience and position can like reduce to, I think, a very unproductive and actually quite politically pernicious form of identity politics, which just demands epistemic deference as if as if we all know ourselves. <laughs> I mean, that it's so psychoanalytically absurd, right? The idea that people just kind of understand their own experience. It's like, no, like <laughs> you have to pay great amounts to your analysts. Like, you know, and even then it's a myth that you come out with, right? Um, so I mean, you can kind of understand how we, how we got here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can understand also like the the long history, the long problematic history of appeals to kind of false consciousness. Mm. Um, that's another thing that pushes us in this kind of epistemic deference um, direction. But I just wondered the, the other the other way that this question comes up is in in controversial questions where a group is divided. So mm. sex work is the obvious one, and so you know there's an injunction often out there where believe sex workers mm. when they talk about sex work like, yes yeah i agree sex workers don't agree yeah. on how to approach sex work and whether sex work should exist although i think actually um almost all sex workers i've spoken to about it would say in an ideal world no mm. um almost all and so uh, this question is obviously a live one right and it seems to me one way into it is recognizing that there is no kind of univocal testimony about what it is to think about sex work as a sex worker. Um, And instead there are, partly because any such group is divided in terms of sort of everything that that one brings to the table. What's the way through thinking about a question like sex work? Uh, I mean, I can just say a little bit about how I've done that, which is, I mean, you know, you do start from as we like to say, the testimony of sex workers. But what I really mean is the political thought of sex Mm, workers. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary, the body of political thought produced by sex workers. Um, So Molly Smith and Juno Max, Mm -hmm. uh, Revolting Prostitutes is just like one, but particularly formidable example Mm, mm, mm. of, you know, an attempt to really not just kind of, I mean, to not just sort of theorize about sex work, but really use sex work as a way into thinking about a whole set of kind of profound questions in radical politics. but I think I think if what you're hoping for is to be able to ever like read off normativity from a group, you know, that's going to be impossible. And if what you're what you're afraid of is that any form of normative theorizing that doesn't take that form is going to be like imperialist, then you know you're kind of dead in the water. Um, the question is, how do you think with people, mm-hmm. right? And um, I mean, in the sex work debate, it is kind of interesting. While while you're absolutely right, there's no kind of univocal take on sex work. I mean, it is kind of striking that the anti-decriminalization or what's sort of traditionally called the, you know, sex work abolitionist perspective, you know, 
insofar as it involves sex workers, it's usually ex-former mm. sex workers. Um, and it is very interesting that people who are current sex workers, while they disagree on all sorts of things, kind of uniformly don't want uh, their practice criminalized. With a kind of really fascinating uh, exception. So there's this uh, wonderful piece in N Plus One that came out a few years ago by Son- Sonia Aragon, who's a sex worker. She's an anarchist sex worker. And she kind of was like, I want to get beyond a politics of decriminalization because like, I'm on the side of the criminal, you know, and I don't want to just be normalized as some kind of non-criminal, you know, um, lunch pail worker, uh, because, you know, she thinks that insofar as there's any kind of radical hope with sex workers, it's because of their unity with everyone who stands outside the law. And I think that's a kind of really radical and interesting perspective. And there's no way of adjudicating this stuff by just hoping for some kind of consensus. You know, I think you've just got, got to think it think it through well it becomes you know a series of kind of you know mutually incommensurable claims to authority right you know um and they're claims that that are mobilized around false consciousness right because you know the 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 argument that that is made on the part of you know so-called abolitionists is well of course you would think that because you're still doing sex work and therefore in order to mentally survive the fact of doing sex, you have to. You know, it's an incredibly patronising argument in various ways, but but you know it's, it's made a, a, you know via these kind of claims to authority via kind of former sex workers. But but so you, so you see that you know the, you see this is a kind of obviously a completely fruitless way to proceed. Um, uh, but I was struck by in your account of it that the way that that you read uh, the the question of sort of symbolic politics. Um, into this debate in particular. Could you like just expand on that? I mean, what I was going, uh, the, the thing I wanted to add, which just yeah, dovetails yeah. nicely with this is um, the reason for me revolting prostitutes was such an extraordinary, is such an extraordinary text is that it does this thing that I tried to do in these essays of, of um, embracing a kind of radical practice of, of, of taking seriously the other side, right? So uh, when the authors of Revolting Prostitutes started to write that book. They got together a group of sex workers and created a reading group, and they read through the whole history of anti-prostitution literature, especially anti-prostitution feminism. So they were reading McKinnon and Dworkin and Jeffries and Bindle and all of these people. Um, And as a result, they show this kind of extraordinary understanding of what's going on with from the abolitionist perspective, right? So they don't read abolitionists as just simply hostile and to and hating of sex workers, although of course there is that dynamic within within the abolitionist movement. And their diagnosis, or one of the diagnoses they offer is that, look, for abolitionist feminists, um, the figure of the John who buys sex is like this stand in this, this, this um, for all of kind of male supremacy. Right. And then the sex worker becomes, you know, the figure of like every woman who needs to be kind of saved and protected from that. And then the step further I want to take it is that they also, I think, see the law as a symbolic form of abolition. Right. So they make the kind of classic mistake that every like four year old makes, which is like, well, if something's bad, we should outlaw it (laughs) because if it's bad, it shouldn't exist. And the law takes things out of existence, but the law doesn't take things out of existence. The law just changes the legal status of the people who engage in those practices. Sometimes it takes things out of existence. Sometimes it brings new things into existence like gay marriage. But in the case of sex work, what it does is it just changes the legal status of buyers and sellers of sex, right? Um, So, the, the way I read the situation um, 
inspired by Juno and Molly is as a kind of symbolic politics, a certain kind of symbolic investment um, in the punishment of the John as the figure of male supremacy in general versus a kind of more pragmatic materialist politics, which is just really, you know, happy to give up that those symbolic satisfactions um, in order to uh, just like make the worst off women better off. Right. Um, And I say happy to give up those symbolic satisfactions. What I think is so compelling about revolting prostitutes is the way in which Juno and Molly like sympathize with the desire to punish men. Mm. They're like, we've been the victims of sexual violence. Like, you know, we're sex workers. (laughs) If anyone wants to punish these men, it's us. But what we would much prefer, as any of you would in our position, is like to make our lives easier, to make our working lives easier. Let's talk about mimesis. And this is something that was on my mind when reading, again, a, a kind of a, a chapter that I think brings out the pedagogic you know, really acutely, which is your chapter on pornography, right? Which is, you know, concerned with many things, but, but very much bound up with your experience of teaching students about, um, you know, about anti-pornography uh, you know, feminist writers, um, which... I was surprised to read as much as you were surprised to find, (laughs) um, found a kind of very receptive Mm. audience among your students. I wonder if if we can talk just a little bit about kind of, you know, the questions that are raised when we start thinking about pornography. Mm. And, you know, in particular, you know, so this is, this is somewhere where kind of technological change comes front and center, right? Um, Because reading, lots of the kind of anti-pornography feminists, like reading something from another age. Yeah. And it's proleptic yeah. because they see the pornographic as being everywhere. And now it is. Yeah, but it really wasn't that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so that that's really startling yeah. to read. Yeah. And so what is the experience? You know, what is it that 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 is so compelling about recovering this this kind of this this critique of of pornography? Your students very often feel you know the 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 thing, the one thing that is foreclosed to them in the kind of vast welter of sort of digital um, possibilities is the possibility to desire in a way that isn't kind of totally conditioned by the pornographic. It's very depressing. <laughs> I mean, another way of I mean, there was a student who I think I quote this in the book who said to me, "This was sort of deep into a seminar in which I was sort of yes." Um, shocked to find them all sympathizing quite strongly with, you know, this anti-porn feminist writing. And quite deep into the seminar, she says, but if it weren't for pornography, how would we learn to have have sex? And I've never felt so old because I felt like, let me take you back to a time when people, you know, learn to have sex with each other. I mean, you know, um, but there, you know, there was something quite dark in, in that question, this kind of presumption um, that something has to step in and not just sort of tell you, you know, the facts, not just sort of tell you about the birds and the bees or like, you know, teach you how to put on a condom, but something has to be there kind of instructing the moves and the affect and, you know, the psychosexual dynamics of an encounter you are yet to have. And I found that very dark, but I think it is quite a prevalent mm. feeling among um, people like my students who have like actually come of age sexually in the world of porn, right? Mm. Which like we just didn't. That's really interesting. Yes, yes. Um, so I was very taken aback. So I had sort of t- 
taught the porn wars just as because it's kind of necessary in a feminist theory class, which has a bit of a historical angle to it. Um, but I thought they were going to find it very sort of boring and outdated or maybe kind of sweet and naive, <laughs> but they were kind of riveted um, and they were riveted by the anti-porn stuff. Mm. And, and I should, I should be very quick to say, like they weren't taken by the legal arguments, right? They kind of, they know better. Um, uh, well, I think they sort of maybe know better than anyone uh, that like the internet cannot be contained mm. in the way that those who sort of nostalgically hope for some kind of legislative uh, quote unquote solution to pornography, um, imagine. So, you know, they know that's a dead end. They also just kind of instinctively know that um, attempts to kind of legislate, se legislate sex work invariably end up hurting the sex workers themselves. Um, but they were very taken with just the kind of descriptions of the particular functional role of pornography um, as a form of pedagogy. Mm. So pornography being like the training ground for how to have sex. And what was interesting is that like the men, my male students are the ones who really strongly feel this, um, gay and straight. They often, mm -hmm. they, they, they found it very resonant, the idea that they had been taught how to have sex by pornography. And not by pornography generally, not by cool, queer indie porn. <laughs> no, by mainstream yeah, yeah, yeah. free porn that you get on Pornhub, which has been selected for you by one of the world's most powerful and and quiet companies, mm -hmm. um, which owns basically all of all of you know free internet pornography. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that I was very, I was really brought up brought up short. Well, I mean, it's it, I just I find some of the accounts of this stuff really interesting because like, yeah, and the, the reason I, I started by talking about mimesis is that that this this you know, in one sense, of course, pornography is not mimetic in the sense that it doesn't mirror. The way in which human beings have historically, or most for the most part, do have sex—that's not what it's for, mm. um, you know—and and lots of the kind of feminist literature on pornography <laughs> points this out: uh, is that it encodes certain messages, and you know, and so on and so on, and encourages forms of identification. And there are certain, you know, there are possibly you know, there are possible perverse forms of identification of mainstream pornography, but the identification it encourages is not a positive one. Mm. It also seems to me to kind of call out to, you know, and it seems to me, it, you know, it almost feels like reading that chapter that that your students are, are kind of developing, you know, this this almost like Rene Girard style theory of mimetic desire, right? That, that, that there is you know, there is a kind of repetitive, there is a, a form, uh, you know, with not necessarily with an original, in fact, that 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 kind of arises. There's a you know a, a, you know a form of kind of self conditioning that arises from an object that purports to be mimetic, and then your mimesis, your your viewing of it. So do you see what I mean? That yeah. there is there is like there is this kind of whole kind of difficult world that you then get into about representation and consumption of kind of cultural objects which is not just the question of pornography it's the question of of literature of cinema of, question of instagram yeah, yes right? yes these yes. are all copies without yes. an original yes <laughs> and um and unsurprisingly and and things that you can't live up to right um and so you can't live up to pornography because it purports to mm -hmm. tell you the way people do have sex but it tells you the way no one has sex is you can't have sex that way um if you ever read uh, accounts of what it actually is to be a uh, someone who works in pornography. I mean, just the amount of artifice and skill mm -hmm. and difficulty that goes into it. I mean, it's like, you know, you're, it's like going and watching a play. I mean, there's, it's, it's no more real than like Mamet, right? But, you know, <laughs> um, and, 
Uh, and then, of course, there's the feeling of, of failure, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Um, not having been able to, to live up to that. Um, it's a destructive cycle. I mean, there, I, I quote it in the book. There's this, uh, you know, Lisa Ann recounts, who's a, um, a very big porn star, uh, recounts on John Ronson's podcast, um, you know, these, these incidents of these very young boys, basically nine, 10, 11, like coming up to her and sort of saying these lewd sexual things. They recognize her from porn. And the thing she always says to them is like, that, this is never <laughs> going to happen to you. What you see there is never going to happen to you. Right. And she, and, you know, cause it's so obvious if you work in porn that this is not, you know, this is not how porn stars have sex when they go home. Right. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, and of course, like the sexual imagination is, um, it's not just a mimesis machine. It's not just a replication machine, right? So it is capable of doing something much more complicated. So for example, you were talking about perverse identification, right? Like pornography, mainstream porn wants, you know, the man to identify with the man, but, you know, sometimes the man is identifying with the woman, mm-hmm. sometimes the woman's identifying with the man, so on. And that can be interesting and salutary in all sorts of ways. But what's kind of, I think... I mean, this is a point that Dworkin makes in intercourse is like, well, but you've got to kind of separate out the, the sexual imagination when it's really doing what it can do and this other track that it can fall in onto, which is where it's just being like rote and mimetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, that's what pornography kind of encourages. It, it encourages a kind of laziness. There is a tension within the left, particularly in Anglo-America, there is a tension between two parts of the left, one of which sees excess catering to identity politics as being the thing that has ghettoized and defeated and has meant the defeat of whatever the socialist hope yeah. was, you know, Bernie, Corbyn, whatever. Those on the margins get lumbered with the blame. Right. <laughs> sure. No surprises there. Um, and then on, on the other hand, there is there is a critique of those movements that they were insufficiently mm. attentive to the way in which like the 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 agent the political agents of change if nothing else think of themselves differently mm. than a kind of classic mid say mid 20th century kind of working class subject whether or not you think actually there has been kind of fundamental changes to class structure underneath that the way that people think of themselves yeah. certainly has changed so it seems to me that there is this kind of conflict over you know on the one hand a kind of a sort of minimalist universalism, right? That says like there are a series of kind of very minimal political claims we can make about like everyone should have a, a job or everyone should have a nice house or you know a, a house of some kind. And I don't, I, you know, I'm being a bit sarcastic, and I don't, but I don't wish to diminish those as, as fundamental claims of justice. If they, I'm not sure about the one about jobs, but <laughs> the, the, <laughs> everyone has the right not to have a job. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> if to if you were job. to extend, the, you know, if you were to extend that beyond kind of, you know, just a demand within, you know, say a demand, a global demand for adequate housing, mm. that immediately ceases yeah. to be a kind of minimal universalist demand, but becomes a, you know, whatever. But nonetheless, these are these are political projects that think on a national scale. It's still an important demand. But it nonetheless is a relatively minimalist one. And I think it comes from a sense that if there is a universalism um, that, that we can undertake politically, it is now defensive. It is now firmly within the bounds of kind of, you know, uh, 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 very conventional possibility, you know, maybe pushing at the limit of it. But like, is it useful to maintain a kind of universalist claim politically? Um, you know, I. I think I think this I think you know there is a particularly important perspective here that comes from feminist thinkers. 
Yes. Well, no monolithic view within within you know even kind of anglophone uh, feminism on the question of of the universal. Um, I mean, I will say a bad form of universalism, I think, addresses what. Uh, you know, the least common denominator. So you take everyone in a group, you take all workers and you ask, what do they all have in common? Um, well, everyone needs a house, right? Um, and that becomes your political priority because, um, I mean, so sexual harassment is like a really good way of thinking about this. So um, the <sighs> Me Too is just a kind of fascinating phenomenon because in the US and the UK, although not in, in, in some other countries, um, in the US and the UK, in Japan, in India, Me Too worked very effectively as a kind of universalist rallying cry among, um, or a seemingly universalist rallying cry uh, among women, because you know most women work and every woman who works has in some sense been subject to some form of sexual harassment. Um, and so you can look to that and think, well, you know, that's our good minimal aim, eradication of sexual harassment, uh, because it's this thing that like all women, you know, the suppressed group have in common. I mean, the, the problem with that is it's just not the worst thing about work for the worst off women, you know, in the US or the UK or anywhere. Um, you know, but it is for wealthy actresses the worst thing about their jobs, right? I mean, it probably is the worst thing about their jobs. I'm not saying that their jobs are perfect. Otherwise, I mean, there's the problem that they're all out of work after the age of like 35. But, you know, um, there are different shapes a universalist politics can take, right? And there's actually a choice that's often missed between politics that are interested in like what all of a group have in common versus a politics that is interested in like the welfare of all in the group. And those are actually distinct things that come apart and are often, very often conflated. So should our politics be universalist? I mean, they should be internationalist, right? And it's, and, and that itself guides your answer to the question of what forms of universalism are and aren't productive. Um, but, you know, sometimes all that, the only universal that's relevant is like, well, you know, the same guy is trying to kill all of us, right? Um, or the same group of people, the same kind of set of forces. One of the things that feminism does, has done, especially over the course of the 20th century, is to make a really fundamental claim about the political, right? So it says the boundary of politics, what you have considered politics up until this point, isn't enough. What you consider political isn't enough. So these things that for you outside politics need to be included in your conception. There is a, a an obvious disjuncture you know, between the kind of thinking that you're doing, like radical sort of political thinking about sex, about gender, about everything. <laughs> <laughs> but, but a disjuncture between that kind of thinking and the political forces which exist yes. already to bring that critique into, into, into action. There is such a rebirth of thinking on the left, right? I mean, 20 years ago, you know, when I first started dipping my toe in, into kind of political thinking, I mean, it, it, it was miserable. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it was, was for it you was. as well. Um, and yet there's like, there's, you know, there's been a kind of, you know, there's an inverse relation in terms of kind of the forces available to you or even the belief that, that kind of the, that, that you can make the, the, the transition between thinking um, and, and force, force is, I suppose, a, a reasonable way to think about it, um, it is possible. But, you know, 
even in kind of embryonic form, what we've just been talking about in, in terms of, you know, the relative conservatism of the political forces arrayed on the left. And I mean, you know, conservatism there in the sense of their, their kind of critique of, uh, of gender, of the family, of you know, things, things that we've been talking about. It doesn't seem to me to be even on the agenda in that sense. And, and worse, and I suppose it's a fear, and it's a fear that, that comes from experience. It's a fear that comes from making media <laughs> on this sort of new, new left, which is that there is always a hunger for the pat answer, for the kind of policy prescription, for the kind of, the thing that you do tomorrow. Yeah. And I suppose, so, so <laughs> what I'm inviting you to do is not, is not to give us a, a kind of prescription in that sense, but to just, for us to think a bit about what the transition between thinking and political action might look like, right? Yeah. What are the institutions, both sort of, in the most informal and formal sense of that term, the widest possible sense of that term, so that that the left could create, that could be the the agents and sites of this kind of social transformation. I mean, we've been historically promised that, you know, you sort out the wage relation <laughs> one way or another and then everything will follow. We know that's not right. Mm -hmm. We also know that we can't actually, well, at least I think you and I take ourselves to know that we can't sort out the wage relation without thinking about the social about so-called identity politics just because of the demographics of the so-called working class, right? Um, at least in this country and in the US. So it feels like there's some sense in which um, the transformation of these more personal, I mean, political personal dimensions of social life are going to have to change in tandem with everything else. And that makes it even harder because at least, you know, there was a kind of old school Marxist feminist dream that, you know, we sort out, <laughs> we, we get rid of the bosses and then, you know, everything else. And then of course we realize that's not, that's not right. Um, but nonetheless, we think that, um, these things are going to kind of easily go hand in, in hand or what you think to yourself is like, well, you have the kind of basically a socioeconomic transformation, which then opens up space and time for um, so a kind of more purely sort of social transformation relations that kind of transcend and predate um, capital, the capital form. I think even that is too optimistic now for the reasons we mm -hmm. were just saying. Like, I just don't, I think uh, insofar as you're going to get people involved in a, re a trans transformative or even, dare we say, revolutionary project, it's going to be through modalities other than class or not just through class, right? Like modalities of race and gender and sexuality through which the class is experienced for them. To quote Stuart Hall, badly. Um, so, yeah, I really don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there's the question of the state and the terrain of the state and what you do with that. And that has been a longstanding issue within um, feminism, and especially in, in, in this country. I mean, to go back to Sheila Robotham's <laughs> lovely memoir of the 1970s, I mean, it's just filled. I mean, this is what they're all obsessive, obsessing about. It's like, you know, you want to create a rape crisis center, who funds it? Uh, okay, or you want 24-hour childcare, who funds it? How do we call on a state to do this without thereby empowering the state at the same time transforming the state? How do we make sure that we're not kind of institutionalizing and domesticating radical feminist energies within the kind of contemporary state form? This is just a question that's utterly unresolved. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me that the 
I mean, this is just to throw in another idea into the mix, but, you know, some kind of radical democratization of, of the state and state institutions is our, is our best hope. Th that has to, that involves a profound leap of faith because you've got to trust people. Mm -hmm. And it's something that ironically, like us on the left, we on the left aren't always great at doing. <laughs> <laughs> and Brexit has made us, I think, worse at doing it in many ways. And that's a good place for us to stop. I can't recommend Amir's book, The Right to Sex, highly enough as a resource for thinking about all those questions. And you can find more goads for thought, not all of which you'll agree with, as part of Navara Media's Sex Focus. My thanks to Amir for her generosity, both with time and intellect, and to Chow Ravens, whose brilliant editing skills bring you this conversation in this form. I am, of course, James Butler, and this has been Navara FM. Bye-bye.